0: commercial space sets its sight on deep space. You're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Commercial companies are setting ambitious goals and heading into deep space. Rocket company Relativity Space and propulsion company Impulse Space have inked a deal to send the first commercial mission to Mars. It won't be easy. Only two countries, the U.S. and China, have successfully deployed science missions to Mars, and roughly half of the spacecraft sent to the red planet fail. We'll talk with two leaders from the partnership about the challenges and urgency in sending a commercial mission to Mars. Then, another company is working with NASA to bring video conferencing to moonbound astronauts. We'll talk with one communication innovator about how Cisco is bringing WebEx to NASA's next deep space capsule. Commercial space goes deep. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Missions to Mars aren't easy, but a duo of commercial space companies has an ambitious goal of sending a lander there by the end of this decade. Relativity Space is a rocket company which builds its vehicles using 3D printers. Impulse Space builds propulsion components. The two are hoping their partnership will become the first private mission to another planet. To talk more about the challenges ahead, we're joined by Relativity Space's Tim Ellis and Impulse Space's Barry Matsumori. Tim, Barry, welcome to the show.
1: You bet. Great to be here.
0: Yeah, excited. Tim, I want to start with you. This is a very ambitious mission. When you think about missions to Mars, only two countries have done it successfully. Um, what's the motivation to to kind of shoot for Mars like this?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I think for for me, one of the biggest things has been this is one of the founding missions of relativity is to help make humanity multi-planetary and, and go to Mars. Um, We're only the second company when we were started six and a half years ago to go after that mission in the private space industry. Um, But I I certainly think there need to be dozens to hundreds of companies working to make this happen. If we're going to put a million people on Mars in our lifetime, it's a huge endeavor, as as you mentioned. Um, I'm a big fan of SpaceX and what they've done to date and what they're going to do with Starship. But uh, there need to be more commercial companies making this happen. And so now with uh, the the partnership with Impulse, there are now three companies working to make this mission happen. And I think uh, that that's very important because it's just not a certainty that uh, despite incredible success in the private space industry over the last two decades, it's not a certainty that more companies are going to emerge and do it. So for me, this is just uh, the, the same mission that we sketched on the back of a Starbucks uh, receipt. I started the company six and a half years ago. I actually still have that receipt, which is kind of a funny story. Um, But I do think just it's consistently driving towards something that's really important for humanity and expanding the possibilities of human experience in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Are
0: you gonna send that receipt to Mars, Tim?
2: Um <laughs> I've got other plans for that receipt actually and I can't wait to share it. But uh oh I've I've thought a lot about uh I've thought a lot about that receipt. I used it in a talk I did recently in Sun Valley so it was fun. Mm-hmm. Uh Barry,
0: your your company's joining on with Tim on this ambitious mission. Let's talk about what uh, what you all are bringing to the table. Let's talk about the lander. Um, what, what is it going to look like? And, and what are some of its, its things that it has to do on the surface of Mars?
1: Uh, great question. The lander, um, you've maybe seen a photo of it, but it's a space frame structure design uh, with four engines to enable the, the powered landing. Uh, it has several phases through, through the landing, uh, entry, descent, and landing phase. So first it has to get through the atmosphere with the heat shield and then the heat shield separates. There's a parachute to slow down the acceleration and, and get the speed down to the point where the thrusters can then take over and uh, propulsively land the vehicle uh, safely on Mars.
0: Tim, Relativity Space is is going to get this thing off the planet and give it that big boost that it needs to go to Mars. So tell me a little bit about the plans to get it off this planet first, um, kind of what rocket are you using? And, and, and where are we in that development uh, to seeing this?
2: Yeah, of course. So um, we're using Terran R, which is Relativity's second rocket uh, launch vehicle. So the first one, Terran 1, is uh, got its first stage on the launch pad at Cape Canaveral right now. We're just weeks away from doing our first orbital launch as a company. Um, so we're very excited about that and proving to the world that you can launch a 3D-printed rocket to orbit. Um, second stage is already acceptance tested. So so we're, we're well on our way. Uh, the Terran Ard launch vehicle then is a, a much larger uh, payload size. So it's twenty thousand kilograms payload in uh, reusable configuration. So this is a, a fully reusable launch vehicle. Um, it means with expendable payload performance, you have wh- well over thirty-five thousand kilograms payload. Um, so we have, uh, we already essentially have to build. Terran R due to the number of commercial contracts we've signed. We, we recently announced $1.2 billion of deals um, with OneWeb and other companies. Uh, and so we already have to build Terran R. Um, so essentially th- this for us is actually not a lot of extra work um, b- because we've been able to partner with what what is in my opinion, the best team to execute this mission on, on planet Earth, which is Tom Mueller, uh, Barry Matsumori, and, and the rest of their pretty incredible engineering team. Um, I know, you know, I've known Tom for a, a bit now, and he's, of course, a legend in the industry. I think, you know, anyone that is historically bet against um, what him and the, the SpaceX team had achieved uh, kind of lost miserably <laughs> on that bet. So I think this, to me, is just another example. Um, now with our own companies, of course, uh, where we're going to prove that that uh, we can certainly take a real crack at it. Um, we have multiple launch windows through 2029. So I certainly think in that window, the odds of success are, are extraordinarily high, even if it's ambitious and and us driving to the first window. But we're we're gonna we're gonna do it.
0: Barry, why does this relationship with with relativity space make sense? Um, you know, why did, did you both decide to get together to to tackle this this incredibly awesome mission? Well,
1: first of all, uh, as Tim mentioned, it's a it's something that he's been thinking about for quite some time, and as it were, conversations came up uh, late last year between uh, relativity and at the time Tom Mueller about the notion of going to Mars. And it seemed to make sense, and they had the right vehicle. Uh, we knew that we could put together the design, and and in large part, we've done large parts of it. Uh, we've already, uh, in spite of the announcement, we've been working on this for some time, and gone through reviews. So, so uh, yeah, we're actually fairly advanced in in progressing towards this mission.
0: Mm-hmm. And maybe to both you'll i start with you, Tim. Um, you know. Thinking about putting the engineering challenges aside, you know, I've talked to people that say, you know, rocket science is hard, political science is even harder. Are there going to be any policy hurdles that you think you may run into to be a private company launching to
2: Mars? Sure. I I mean, I think the clear answer is, yes, there's going to be hurdles, Uh, whether they're insurmountable or not, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on. Uh, no one has done this before. We'd be the first commercial company in history <clears throat> to land payload on the Martian surface. So I, I think from that standpoint, we're obviously in pioneering territory. Um, luckily, NASA and JPL have done it quite a few times. So I think there's a lot of, uh, in the U.S., kind of rigorous science around what what sort of things you have to think about. And, um, you know, contamination is probably the, the top of mind issue there. And and so, you know, we're going to have to comply with a lot of those those uh, standard processes. But um, I think there's a way to do it, and I think and I think it's a worthy thing to to overcome because we don't just see this as a one time mission. We see this as a business opportunity where um, we're, we're just. Funding it ourselves initially, um, you know, because it's important for the mission and it's important for humanity. And, and I think it's important for America to have the first commercial payload on the Martian surface. And so from that standpoint, we're going to we're going to do it and work with the relevant agencies to do it. But I think uh, lowering the barriers <clears throat> to having payload on Mars is is obviously going to um, be something that once we successfully demonstrate, I think there's a lot of demand for. Uh, We're going to be able to do it for several multiples cheaper than you would traditionally. And I also think um, taking the the same commercial approach that made a lot of our teams previously successful in in building orbital rockets from Earth's surface uh, to LEO, that that same commercial and uh, rapid development approach to interplanetary payload delivery is really big. And, and I know um, Barry can speak to it more, but I think this is along the lines of the same core business that Impulse is developing as well, which is, uh, yeah, Barry can talk
0: to. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about that, Barry. Like, is, you do you envision this as something kind of like um, NASA's CLIPS program or something like that? I mean, is this kind of, you envision that there will be a market for this?
1: I I think the best way to look at it, as Tim's mentioning, is If if, uh, given what we do, we allow those space agencies to focus on the payload, the thing that makes the mission really interesting, and we just provide the transportation and make that as a standard service and make it economical so that the science can be done by the people that really do science well. Mm-hmm. And what's going to be on this first mission? Have,
0: have you decided what what science payloads are going to be there?
2: Um, we haven't decided yet, but we definitely have a few ideas. I know in talking with Tom, we've both been very interested about uh, further exploring the ice and other materials that are present on the Mars surface, um, especially, you know, in my mind, I see this as uh, conducting science experiments, research and development, and testing technologies that will be necessary for having a multiplanetary future on Mars. Um, so it, and for, for me, a lot of the cool things we can do guide towards that. You know, I certainly also think, um, you know, it would be very cool to have additive manufacturing uh, demonstrations and research on, on the Mars surface because the, uh, no one has manufactured another object on another planet um, you know, mm-hmm. before. So we're obviously going to have to do a lot of that if we want a million people on Mars. Um, and, and I think that would be extremely cool as well. But o- overall, the payload space, uh, we, we expect we may do some of our own missions. Uh, we may sell payloads to government uh, we may also have a low enough cost and are easy enough to work with uh, as a as a duo that we have commercial companies that are interested in, in doing their own private research too.
0: Barry, what what are some of the kind of short term challenges your team's working on now? Like what, what what do you need to overcome to make this successful?
1: Um, short term, short term. The good news is there's been a lot of science around this mission that uh especially nasa jpl has done for example the heat shield that heat shield design is very much modeling what's been done in the past so we don't have to recreate thermodynamic models or anything else that have already been done but yeah getting the the overall vehicle designed and simulating the mission that's all that we've been working on now so that we understand all the parameters around the mission
0: and and finally, Tim, you said that you've got launch opportunities through 2029. Um, when could this mission actually leave the ground? What are you targeting?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, this mission could certainly actually leave the ground as Relativity's first turn our launch um, at the at the end of 2024. So the first window we have uh, is a possibility. I think for that to be. The first window we hit, certainly success on tearing one, launch one uh, out of the gate would be very helpful. Um, you know, I, I think it's worth pointing out that just because it's ambitious and, and you know, at the edge of crazy or insane, but achievable and, and physically possible, that that's actually where you want to set goals. I think if anything has been true in this industry, um, you know, people that have had, a lot of credible execution and momentum um, have always set goals fairly far ahead of of where you know the the industry is, and I think um, you know it goes back to the point I want to double click on earlier because it's probably the most important one to me is we're two decades into the private space industry with a leading company that is probably the most inspiring engineering uh, execution of our generation. I can think of maybe a few other companies that have had as big and as dominating of an impact in an industry um, as SpaceX has in the first two decades of their existence. I'm a huge fan of theirs. It's really disappointing that there aren't other companies that are dreaming as big as that to that level of crazy um, and, and I, and I actually think it's less crazy to have a big ambitious mission because you end up getting a lot of the smartest people rallying behind it. Um, I think it adds up to something that's really exciting.
0: Barry, I saw you nodding along during that. I mean, do you, do you share those, those
1: kind of same motivations as Tim? To what Tim's saying? Yeah, we're going to break open this avenue to Mars and to other planets, but you have to do it by, by being bold.
0: Barry and Tim, thank you both uh, for joining us. Thanks much. It's been great.
2: Thanks, Brendan. Good to talk with you as always. That was Relativity Space's
0: Tim Ellis and Impulse Space's Barry Matsumori. Still to come, video conferencing on the moon. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet here on WMFE America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA is sending astronauts to the moon. Artemis missions will take humans to nearly a quarter of a million miles away from Earth on a more than month-long mission. So how can we stay in touch with our deep space astronauts? NASA is working with commercial companies like Cisco WebEx to help keep astronauts connected to their co-workers and families back here on Earth. To talk more about the project and an upcoming test mission of the tech on NASA's Artemis 1 mission is John O'Luck, VP at Cisco WebEx. O, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So with with most tech development, there is a problem, uh, and then you develop a solution. Uh, so when it comes to deep space communication, what what is the problem? What are, what are you trying to solve here?
3: Yeah. Uh, well, some of the variables, as I call it, of deep space are a little bit different. First of all, <laughs> how far the two parties are is kind of the most fundamental. Um, on Earth, what, we're a couple thousand, tens of thousands of miles at most away from one another. If you Travel the globe, you know, least efficiently. Uh, with space, we're talking up to, for example, the moon, two hundred forty thousand miles, and that just changes the nature of how long it takes for signal to get one place to another. The other is you and I right now. We're probably connecting over a good amount of fiber optic cable. No one's dragging two hundred forty thousand miles of fiber optic <laughs> cable behind any one of these shuttles, right, as they're making it their way to the moon and beyond. And so the medium is uh, NASA's deep space network. This is an amazing technology, but it's radio waves now, not speed of light. So you've increased that distance and you've decreased the speed. And the third factor, which always is fun, you have a lot less bandwidth. You know, I've got, what, two, three megabit up. Um, You're talking maybe 100K. So it's 2022 video, as we might all love today. Over what I love to call 2004 internet, when <laughs> you were <laughs> downloading MP3s and waiting for three hours, um, that, that's the kind of to challenge that Deep Space introduces. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I want to talk a bit about using the Deep Space Network for this because that's that's pretty fascinating. I mean, the Deep Space Network was was built to talk to spacecraft, right? These these vehicles that are are traveling through the solar system, and and how are you leveraging this network to connect to, let's say, the Orion? space capsule
3: yeah so first of all the um, full credit and props go to the NASA team right they own that deep space network and and for listeners that that may or may not know what this is you've probably seen photos of these giant dishes that are geodistributed around the world I think the the biggest one is 70 meters across right 210 feet um, so they own that network. They provide just like we think of every day, day in, day out on the internet, a guarantee of delivery, you know, quality of service. And and so it is our internet, right? In the same way that you and I are connected, or people talk to their parents and children and, and teachers, uh, the deep space network is our medium. And our special built version of WebEx runs atop that, just like you and I use the internet
0: hmm. Why is it so important to have this kind of video connection with with these astronauts that will be in in the, you know, the Orion space capsule to have that communication back with
3: Earth? Yeah. I, I, well, a couple things. First of all, humans are social animals. right? <laughs> I, mean, I, um, I like to see people. I like to talk with people. I like to interact with people. I think that's true of most people, at least at some point in their day. Uh, when we talk about these deep space missions, we're talking tens of days, right? Forty-two days. Eventually, if we're talking Mars, you're talking hundreds, or eventually even thousands. You need that connection back to your loved ones, and so video, first and foremost, can offer that. In the context of Artemis One, it's unmanned. Let's just be clear, right? There's no one on the actual uh, the the capsule in the capsule, but we want to showcase that ability. To see a face, a familiar face, as you're traveling out there. There's only a couple folks with you on that mission. And so being able to to bring those people back into your life as you're going further and further from home uh, is a critical element. So social animals is really the, the first need. The second is we want to make exploration and science better. So this is where video a picture was worth a thousand words. And my joke is that, well, a video is worth a million pictures, literally, right? As you, as you cut those frames. And so we now have an ability to help scientists on Earth see what their experiment is like up there, out there, right? You know, I, I don't know if this fact is, is widely known, but there have been 3,000 plus science experiments performed on the ISS, the International Space Station alone, in their first one years. There's no way you could have shipped that many scientists, and I don't think they all want to go that far either necessarily, right? <laughs> so we open up a whole new sort of scale at which we can perform these experiments and also the immediacy of the results. I'm not waiting for data to be sent back to Earth for them to munge on it and then send something back. With some latency, I can see now and share real-time directives or instructions to get the most of that experiment because literally every minute matters.
0: hmm you mentioned this is happening, the science is happening on the ISS. I'm wondering how much you relied on past experiences and best practices of, of video communication that's on the International Space Station apply to this kind of deep space technology. Where, where's kind of the connect there?
3: Yeah, I would say actually there's probably two camps of past experience and knowledge that helped us to, to really drive towards this goal. The first is absolutely this. Uh, we, we met with really smart people, much smarter than I, from NASA, Lockheed Martin, who is our partner you know, in the technology demonstration, to talk through some of those realities. As I mentioned, NASA owns that deep space network. They know all the ins and outs and hows and whats and, and the tolerance ranges. For example, what to expect with respect to latency. Normally, when we meet over video, I'm sitting at home, you're sitting at home, there's a round trip time. When we talk again about space, you're talking 7, 10, 15 seconds. So that was one of the key things. They already know simply from running these past missions, What's that, what does that look like? Um, the other camp that we draw from actually is ourselves. So luckily, Cisco um, has a lot of customers across all the industries, and we do work with oil and gas companies. We do work with certain companies that have ships that go around the world. And so we're already very aware of some of those kinds of realities when certain signal bounces off satellites. And so between those two, We've been able to put together this special built version of WebEx. The beauty is all those advancements we're taken back to the commercial space. So we brought commercial tech to bear. We brought those lessons in, made it better, and we're pushing those back. Video compression enhancements, you know how we tolerate some of that lossiness, all those things are, are products or are byproducts, if you will, of this work.
0: Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. You, you mentioned the upcoming uh, test mission, right? Can can you tell a little bit about uh, we've got we've got a, a a target launch date for Artemis One. This technology is going to be on the vehicle. Um, what are some of the things you're going to be looking for? What are some of the objectives you have for this?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So Callisto is what we call a technology demonstration. I alluded to this earlier. Um, Artemis One mission—that's where Callisto will shine. Uh, Doesn't have any astronauts on it. There are no humans on this mission, right? There is a dummy that you will see and a whole bunch of apparatus to collect radiation collection information, but there's no humans. We call it a technology demonstration first and foremost because it's actually a partnership between Lockheed Martin, Amazon Alexa, and WebEx by Cisco. And we brought together these commercial technologies, things that you and I may use every day at home, for example, Alexa or WebEx to connect, and we put them. Up in space, uh, Howard actually, or uh, Howard who just uh, tweeted last week a picture of the Callisto unit. It is this blue unit with the Alexa speaker up top and an uh, iPad, a commercial iPad Pro. Right, that's how, where Webex will run. That's actually going to be on that capsule. Right? that's where we're going to uh, to test over this 40-plus day mission and bring people in to be virtual crew members and then showcase how that experience could be. If I am down here talking to people up there, what is that experience? And we'll collect that telemetry. How did that go? What was the actual latency? Were things as expected so we can double down for future missions? That's why it's a technology demonstration. It's the first time commercial tech has been brought to bear in this fashion. And ideally we learn and, and make it better for when there are humans up there. And now we are using this video for those things we talked about before, right? Keeping in touch with family, loved ones and driving better science experimentation and, and discovery.
0: Mm-hmm. John, it's kind of wild to think that all of the technology that is going into this deep space communication technology is in my house, right? I've got an iPad, I've got an Alexa. <laughs> I I could build a spaceship now, I guess, right? <laughs> so, I mean, like, what you, you kind of alluded to this that we're use, or you're using commercial off the shelf technology for this. You're going to make it better. You know, a few years down the line, how is this going to help the way that? you and I communicate to each other down here on earth.
3: Absolutely. You know, um, the one that I love to use as an example here is think about, okay, we we may have great high-speed internet Mm -hmm. (laughs) connecting to one another, talking to one another, but there are so many places on earth that don't, right? There's so many children, students, patients that live in areas where they may have Limited bandwidth. Heck, on certain days I have limited bandwidth <laughs> in this city. Um, the, the type of compression and reliability and those, those quality enhancements that are necessary for this deep space 240,000 mile distance, you know, between Earth and, and that, the payload, well, those can make life better here. Students that are in rural or very distant areas of, of Earth, right, that only have that dial-up speed. Can benefit from those enhancements that we're making now. Again, those other customers and partners of ours and, and those businesses out there that have ships, oil and gas research, deep space, I'm oh, sorry, deep sea, like those are now enhanced and better because we we managed to get this right for space. I would love to have you back on the show.
0: And I look forward to those million pictures that we're going to be getting uh, from Artemis One mission. So John O'Luck, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, Brendan. That was John O'Luck, Vice President at Cisco WebEx. That's going to do it for this week's show, but stay listening. Next week, we'll chat with my space radio colleague Matt Kaplan, who for two decades hosted Planetary Radio. He announced he's retiring later this year, but before he goes, he'll join us to talk about his time hosting the show and his thoughts on the future of space exploration. Don't miss that episode or any episode for that matter. Be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts or visit WMFE.org slash AreWeThereYet. You can also stay connected to the show. Follow us on Twitter. We're at AWTYspace or interact with me. I'm at SpaceBrendan or send us an email. yet at WMFE.org. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's space station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Our intern is Caroline Brockler. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.